0: Is the Fed starting to win the fight against inflation? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With us today is Tamar Beg, Chief Economist at DBS Bank. Hi there. How are you?
1: Hi there. Good afternoon.
0: Yeah. Welcome to Real Vision. Middle of the night for you, uh, full disclosure, and you're a saint for for doing it. You're usually based in Singapore where DBS is headquartered, but you're actually traveling and in Delhi right now. So um, different place, not a better time zone, but we appreciate you being here.
1: Happy to be with you.
0: So I'm really I'm excited to actually get your your take on the global economy. It's always good to get a perspective from a, another part of the world. Um, before we jump in, if anyone has any questions as we're going along, you know what to do. Put them in the comment section of the website. Drop them in the YouTube chat, or you can tweet us at Real Vision, and we'll get to as many as we can. So more, let's start here in the U.S. Um, we saw U.S. equities break a five-day losing streak. We had a rise in weekly jobless claims. Um, but importantly, we get a big producer price number on Friday, which is tomorrow our time. Probably you're there already. Um, Do you think the Fed is making progress in the fight against inflation?
1: Well, sometimes you have to be a lucky general and in addition to being a good general. And I think the energy markets in particular are beginning to make the Fed feel a bit lucky. Uh, we could have been super bearish energy going into the end of 2022, early 2023, because we probably have the makings of a winter of discontent out of Europe around energy supply uh, and then hold this attempt to do price cap on oil or supply issues, all could have made for a very worrisome end of 2022, thinking that maybe some of the energy-related disinflation that everybody's expecting uh, would not materialize. But thankfully, that's not happening. Uh, Despite no sort of resolution, meaningful resolution around Ukraine, we are heading into the end of 2022 with somewhat of a slump Enter the energy markets. And I think you will see that in the producer price data uh, this month and the coming months as lower energy prices and expectations around that, that demand is not that strong. And therefore, the demand that drives inflation is not going to be something that the Fed would have to worry too much about. I think that would be an early narrative going into the next year. And I'm sure the Fed would be very happy about that.
0: Yeah. Well, will it allow them to do what, they, what Powell has sort of Signaled and slow that pace of interest rate hikes, but we're still looking at 50 basis points until, until, something, until we see a sizable drop again. Is that what you see a gradual slowing?
1: Yeah, I think that's what every Fed official would like to implement going to the new year that you announce a scale down of rate hikes in December of 2022, go into 23, January, there are no Fed meetings. Quite a bit of time to wait for week data to come through the system, whether it is from the demand side or the price side. And then in 2023, 20, Feb and March, slow down even further to like 25 basis point clips, right? So that's our forecast that, you know, if you do 50 cumulative in the first quarter of next year, you're now at 5% Fed funds rate going to the second quarter of 23 and you say, I'm sort of done. I'm going to wait and see the lags of monetary policy work through the system. I am seeing weakness in the labor market. Energy inflation is not what it used to be. Food prices are not as hot as they were in 2022. I'm just going to watch. Now, the problem for the Fed would be to think about the next part of the story, which is what the fixed income market is trying to price in right now, which is at what point would they cut? I don't think even in the first quarter of 2023, we're going to have data sufficiently weak for the Fed to start signaling anything of that sort. So the big question is, can the Fed keep Fed funds rate at 5% through the rest of 23? Uh, Can the global economy, including the US economy, absorb that reality that through 2023, we're gonna have 5% Fed funds rate? I think that's the big question for next year.
0: Yeah, so they lo- higher for longer is that that's as right. opposed to looking at the uh, that is a phrase that we heard come up, and I think it's something we're going to be talking about a lot. You know, uh, we were talking about a tweet that's sort of, we've seen them everywhere the charts, um, about the US yield curve being the most inverted in 40 years, twos and tens, um, was, was the chart that we happen to see today. But uh, uh, do you think that that's that, sir, that seems at odds with what the Fed is hoping? which is a soft landing, and I'm starting to hear more people sort of give that a little bit of probability. I mean, no one thought they could do it because they have a terrible track record at it, but I hear more people at least trying to game out a higher probability on that. But then you look at the yield curve, and that suggests a recession. What do you see?
1: So you could probably have a Goldilocks recession. I don't know if that's the apt <laughs> way to describe what's coming, which is that, you know, some people do lose their jobs. Some economic activity does get curtailed, but at the same time, we don't have a financial market accident. Uh, Maggie, if you think about the last few recessions, they have been around the financial markets. We've had mm-hmm. some major event happening with banks or hedge funds or both, uh, which has caused you know, counterparty uh, risk assessment to become very, very adverse, uh, the credit channel to dry up. None of those things are really happening right now. We've had sizable asset price corrections this year. We've had a full-blown meltdown on the crypto space. But none of those developments have caused any systemic issue where Fed officials feel that, you know, we have to, change things. We have to pivot on the dovish direction. We have to add more liquidity because the system is seizing up. Nothing like that has happened. So in 2023, could we see more of that? Because the shock is over, right? The big shock of going from zero to four or five percent, that was 2022. The question for 23 is, can we stay with it for much longer uh, and not have any major accidents? If that is indeed the case, we don't see banks, we don't see a non-bank financial system, you know, posing some sort of a financial stability risk, then the Fed could say, all right, if this is accompanied by some pickup in joblessness, some destruction of uh, asset values, uh, some curtailment of investment, so be it. We're going to live with it. We can take the pain because we're going to restore credibility of the Fed. And around that, a mild recession in 2023 is probably the best that one can hope for.
0: That's so interesting. I love Goldilocks recession. That, that, that's a new one ah. and, and one, we're gonna, one we are going to be talking about. So if that's the case, is that bad news all priced into U.S. equities already?
1: No, I think that the equities still from a valuation perspective are stretched. Uh, mm-hmm. On a relative valuation perspective, the U.S. Equ- equity does not look like a buy at all because the mm-hmm. rest of the world is so beaten up. And you've seen in the last couple of weeks, even the slightest news of China reopening causes a roaring rally there where things are trading at you know historic lows. Now, of course, you know, we have this whole thesis of investability in China. Uh, that's probably one thing that will hold back some of the animal spirits with respect to Chinese stocks. But if you go past China and look at the rest of the emerging market world, same story. They've had a terrible 2022 around high energy prices and the high, strong dollar. So maybe it's their time to shine in 23, uh, even if the U.S. looks somewhat better uh, from relative to 21, the valuations are a little better. They're still pretty expensive. Uh, big tech uh, sell off notwithstanding, the overall market, you know, case Shiller PE or something like that, still trading at high twenties. Uh, that's not an unambiguous buy signal.
0: Yeah. So, so I'm glad you brought up China. Uh, we are. We did start to see signs just this week that they're loosening some of their zero COVID policies. But you're a lot closer to the situation. First of all, do you think that that's what's happening? Many people were surprised. It seems like a big, a big turnaround uh, for G to do that in the, in the, as a response to protest. Is that what's really happening? Do you really think that they're loosening up? How are you reading that situation?
1: So Maggie, look, in the last two and a half years, we have seen countries pursue the pandemic the right way, and we've seen countries that pursued it the wrong way. At the end, they all sort of come out of it, right? I mean, the virus doesn't stay around forever. But Mm -hmm. you do have to go through a spike in cases and some degree of lockdown. I mean, think about India, where I'm right now visiting. Uh, A year and a half ago, they had the massive Delta wave, it was absolutely devastating with those shocking images of, you know, the funeral pyres being filling up with dead bodies. But they moved on, you know. They Mm -hmm. sort of developed some degree of herd immunity around that and also got vaccinated. China will also get there sooner or later, but it seems to me that the likelihood is to be later than sooner because they have there's one very big problem, which is their vaccines are not very effective and mm-hmm. they're not rolling out mRNAs in a very big way. So I'm excited about the fact that they're embracing some reality that you can't stay locked down forever. You need to get on with your life, that's good. And I'm glad that the market is also recognizing it'll be a one-way road, but I also don't think that they're gonna come out of it just like that because as we have seen in the last few days, the second you open up, cases do go up. And that does cause a great deal of nervousness in a population which really hasn't seen the kind of outbreak-related difficulties that you and I have experienced over the last two and a half years. China has been in a very sweet, you know, cocoon, if you will. There hasn't been a spike in deaths. There has been a, you know, massive millions of cases in a day sort of situation that we had in the U.S. None of that has happened. They've tried very hard to keep it at bay. but now the question is, you know, if they do open up and they do have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cases a day, can they live with that from a social cohesion perspective, from an mm. economic uh, dynamic perspective?
0: Yeah, it's it's such a difficult situation, but perhaps the protests we've seen at uh, of the people just being at the end of the rope with the lockdown suggests that's the trade off that they're all going to be. Kind of grappling with now, but maybe ready for. So we had a question from Twitter. Um, what is the main reason for the dump? We we found out they're referring to this is from CoinActuary, Referring to uh, WTI, um, will it continue in light of China easing the COVID restrictions? That's a great question because there had been some speculation that it, you know this is partly demand driven, but you're seeing this pullback in energy on the on the idea that there's going to be demand destruction. But if China reopens, what does that mean?
1: Well, I think we need to take into cognizance a few things. One is China is very, very well stocked. Uh, between the discounted oil from Russia and their strategic uh, you know, sort of desire to be energy secure, they have bought a ton through the course of the last year or so. So it's not like you know the reopening would force China to start placing brand new orders and on the margin we'll see huge additional demand for China on the energy market. That's not going to be the case. Secondly, I think a lot of energy traders like to look at The past decade in 2008, 2009, even as the global crisis was percolating through the West, China was growing robustly and its demand for energy was substantial. That China, Maggie, is in the past. China's energy intensity has peaked. China's potential GDP growth rate has peaked. So we're not going to have China playing a massive spoiler in the global energy market just because it's reopening, it'll be far more subdued. And I think that's why the energy market, we don't really see the backwardation momentum that we saw earlier. It's basically saying, yeah, China's coming back, but I'm not seeing any major signal to be super long energy. I can understand and appreciate that sentiment.
0: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.
0: Absolutely, and you make a great point about stocking up. We've we've had that. In fact, it, it's going to be a piece that's dropping on our platform soon of someone who tracks all of that very closely, and and also pointing out the fact that they have been stocking up like crazy in anticipation for the fact that when they when they were to finally reopen, they needed to have at least some of that. But you're right; it's a very changed economy. Uh, what you mentioned before, uh, if China is reopening or if, if if we're looking at opportunity, U.S. equity valuations look rich still, especially in in relation to the rest of the world. Talk to me about emerging markets. This has come up a lot. A lot of people have emerging markets on their radar, but that is a very big phrase. How do how are you thinking about the emerging markets that look best positioned going into 2023?
1: So, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not like all of emerging markets was a wholesale sell off in 2022. Brazil did pretty well. Uh, they were ahead of the curve in 21, long before any emerging market economies were serious about hiking rates. They did, and they were massively rewarded for it this year. Despite all the political uncertainty, Brazilian markets did a pretty uh, amazing job in terms of delivering good returns in 22. I think 23 is the year for the sort of the fallen angels, if you will. So, China is one which has been beaten down so much. Maggie, when I travel to the U.S., so many clients ask me that question, is China investable at all? And the answer is, you know, for such a large economy, despite all the geopolitical tension, there's definitely going to be some pockets of investability in China. And I think that question then comes back to investors' radar screened to their filters in 23, you know, which sector is still dynamic, which sector is not going to be a function of Xi Jinping's draconian policies, and can you go along those sectors? Uh, and India, which I suppose on a relative basis is somewhat rich. It has received also a huge amount of inflows in recent months, uh, but I think it has a further leg or two to go as well. And again, it depends on the sector one looks at. Consumer is always very, very rich, but then there are things around the infrastructure play or housing which may still have some room to play. But let's go beyond the obvious candidates like the China, India, and the Brazils of the world. Look at the broader EM, You know, whether it is uh, Malaysia or Indonesia countries that will probably still benefit to some extent from the reopening dynamic. Uh, we go to these places to travel, like you know, go to like Langkawi or Bali, there are no Chinese tourists, Maggie. And mm-hmm. even if China were to partially reopen, just that it's going from zero to a few hundred thousand tourists would make the world of difference for those economies. And their tourism sector will be a massive play into 2023 and regional events and tourism, there's also picking up. So I think, Emerging markets will enjoy the same kind of dynamic that we saw in the Western markets in late twenty one and through twenty two you know massive pickup and travel, can't get a plane ticket, can't get a hotel room. I think that's still in store, and that again will provide a lot of upside,
0: yeah, because we've seen this story already, haven't we? We know exactly what happens when exactly. people bust out of two, three years of quarantine and it, it they want experiences. they want all that, so it's it's not hard to imagine that that will transpire. Uh, the other, the other interesting thing about that region, I had the um, pleasure and privilege of um, joining the London Stock Exchange Group, um, which had an event with the head, uh, the exchange heads of many of these: um, Thailand, Indonesia, um, and Singapore. And they were all talking about the fact that if you look at ASEAN, the Asian region, right outside of of China, that it's a very different dynamic and very different economies than when you think back to the financial crisis. So much has changed. Uh, from that time um and it is it is a different a different uh, foundation and layout isn't it
1: right i mean you know look there are always vulnerabilities i mean as we saw this year when the dollar strengthens a lot all of these economies face some degree of pressure there are people with hard currency liabilities they have to refinance them in local currency terms that costs a lot more money when the dollar is so strong that will reverse in 23 dollar will soften up that itself is a source of reading And then to your point on ASEAN, there's a big structural story here, which is the RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. I mean, that brings in all the ASEAN economies with North Asia and China together to form like a big common market. And Maggie, if you're a Chinese producer and you're worried about Western sanctions coming to increase the cost of your doing business, under the rubric of RCEP, you can produce in Vietnam or Malaysia or Indonesia, and export uh, without that worry. So I see Chinese capital becoming very mobile and Chinese companies opening up subsidiaries and plants all over ASEAN through this free trade agreement or this common market agreement so that they sort of insulate themselves from the made-in-China stigma that probably will be coming with a lot of products. And also under the RCEP, China, for example, does not have free trade agreements with Korea and Japan. But now under RCEP, they again become a part of a one big family of trade, where again cost of doing trade would be substantially cheaper. So, in addition to just the reopening dynamic and uh, overall sort of the softening of the dollar cycle, mm. we have a big structural story for ASEAN as well going forward. That is
0: so interesting, so important, and I think underappreciated. Uh, that that that's a really fascinating, and we'll have to to keep a close eye on that. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, tomorrow, I think that that's that's really something that doesn't get enough play over here. You know, when you're competing with headlines, uh, we have a couple of questions I want to get to. Um, first, first, this is re- exactly related to what we're talking about. Ralph asking, um, India, Indonesia, Singaporean indices are positive year to date in local currency terms and negative in U.S. dollar terms. What are you seeing in, the, in these markets? And, and is that likely to continue, I guess, is worth asking.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the reverse has already played out in the last month or so. Uh, so like think about saying dollar was trading at about 139, 140 to the U.S. two months ago, and now it's 135 and hitting lower, showing a lot of momentum. So you have this unusual phenomenon where trade is weakening, uh, particularly advanced, uh, high-value-added products. Exports have been slumping. But at the same time, the dollar is beginning to weaken. And that will be sort of a good story for Asian exporters. And that would feed into the stock market as the uh, opposite of what the uh, uh, question was sort of alluding to, which is now you might even have flat or not that impressive local currency gain. But in U.S. dollar terms, it will gain just from the currency side. So the basis trade, as you will, is turning in favor of Asia in a very big way.
0: We have a question from Paul. We haven't talked about Europe. And Paul's asking, how can Europe participate in a true recovery when their future energy situation past this winter faces so many headwinds, especially for their industrial needs?
1: So I have a slightly more constructive take on that. I think this was supposed to be the biggest challenge this winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we saw, because Europe had a nine-month lead-up to the winter to prepare or what is about to come, uh, I think they have stocked up extremely well. I think they have shown tremendous fortitude in terms of supporting consumption by providing all sorts of subsidies and vouchers to their people. Uh, And therefore, I don't think the Europeans are gonna be looking at uh, a winter where they'll have to huddle up around a fireplace and put on three sweaters. That's just not gonna happen. And we have noticed that between the US and Qatar, there is a lot of natural gas that Europe can import without necessarily creating difficulties in those countries. Maggie, I'm sure you remember when the crisis first broke out, the basic view in the energy market was there just isn't enough gas to replace Russian gas. And mm-hmm. if the Americans start exporting to uh, Europe, there'll be massive consternation in the US local currency, a uh, local gas market, and prices will go to the roof. I think those doom and gloom scenarios have not panned out as much, uh, thankfully, because again, we do have a lot of that stuff in the world. Sometimes supply is a bit inelastic. Sometimes they don't catch up. Maybe we didn't invest enough on refining capacity and all that kind of stuff. I understand all that. But look at the energy market pricing over the last few months. It's telling you hype monetary policy is slowing demand. It's telling you on the supply side, we do have a lot of stuff. And when there's a war situation, people do show a lot of fortitude. They get their act together and they get the supplies done. I mean, look at those satellite pictures of tankers full of gas that are coming into Europe from all over the world. They don't even have the capacity to unload them. So why should I be that worried about, you know, the energy outlook for Europe uh, if I'm seeing that sort of supply side response?
0: We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com.
0: Interesting. Is there if if you're a little bit more constructive on Europe, is it what assets would are you are you investing there? Would you be recommending investing there? And then where where is that on what time frame?
1: Right. So look, it's again a valuation story. Uh, the dollar has strengthened so much against euro this year that from a US dollar based investor's perspective, Europe looks extremely cheap. Whether it is European real estate or industrials or just regular consumer consumer story, uh, after taking into the fact that you know they are probably looking at. A, a weak 2023 around high energy prices and the uncertainty of the lingering conflict in Ukraine, it still is interesting. It's not a screaming buy. I would say from a relative perspective, emerging markets look more attractive than Europe, but the valuation story has to be taken into account. You don't see G7 currencies move the way they have this year. It's just seismic moves, whether it's the yen or the euro or the pound. Uh, and, And how can that not open up some valuation, some attractive opportunities I'm sure there are private equity companies, as we speak, are looking at sort of, you know, picking up assets around Europe which look attractive.
0: Mm. You know, you bring up private equity. We saw so far we we seem to have things lining up where it looks like central banks are making progress. Some of the worst case scenarios with energy aren't coming to fruition. So you can see it in the VIX. The the worry level is down a little bit. But these are still – this is still a tricky situation in transition and transition, and there's still, you know, in an era of crisis, I certainly, we certainly have people on saying, listen, this is going to be a higher volatility uh, environment as we make sure we get through this. There was that moment with the u k pension system, and a lot of people were concerned when the b i s just put a really a report out now saying there's trillions of dollars sitting in derivatives markets. we don't see we're afraid we can't get our hands around the next crisis. Do you worry about that in the private market, in the asset management market, or in in derivatives?
1: I think it's a terrific question, and this is again, an interesting divergence in the quality of data and surveillance capabilities between the ECB and the Federal Reserve. I actually had a conversation on this thing, on this particular issue just a few days ago with some Federal Reserve officials, which is that Europe, for all its problems and difficulties over the last decade or so, have built up an excellent data surveillance system around the non-bank financial sector. You know, banks, we all have good regulations and good data on what their risk exposures are. Non-bank financial system has become very large, And we don't have very good handle on it. And my understanding from looking at the data that the ECB collects versus the Fed, ECB actually has a better handle on the non-bank financial system, whether it is a derivative exposure or migration into high-risk credit as a zero interest rate or negative interest rate policy persisted through the past decade. In the U.S., uh, the Fed, I don't think, has as good a data handle on the non-bank financial system's exposure. So the BIS warning, in my view, is more apt for the U.S. than Europe. And I fully take into account that a year of 5% Fed funds rate, regardless of what the long end is doing with even version, is a major risk. Do we have the absorptive capacity in the global financial system to live with such high rates, having not lived with it for a couple of decades? A big question for sure.
0: Yeah, big question. It's something we need to watch out for, even if it seems like things are going. We never see it. This is the the the, the definition of that's a big right. swan, right? Um, that's an area that we're gonna we're gonna keep a, a close eye on. Certainly, Liquid Gems is asking, "Have you seen the rally in TLT the last few weeks? Buy bonds, wear diamonds?" Question mark TLT is up fifteen percent in the last month. H- how are you feeling about fixed income and in U.S. Treasuries?
1: Uh, so that's another interesting uh, sort of you know development over the last six months that you have quantitative tightening. You have the fiscal position of the U.S. government becoming tighter, so the U.S. is not issuing as much treasuries as it was uh, doing in the past. Uh, and then on the demand side, uh, China is not a very big source of U.S. treasury demand. Their current account surplus is shrinking, and even the, whatever surplus they have, they're not necessarily recycling into the treasury. Despite all that, we see terrific volume in the treasury market on a daily basis. We see substantial demand, particularly from the Gulf countries, which have made so much money this year with high oil prices, mm, and they are recycling it straight back into U.S. Treasuries. So the fixed income market, in my view, particularly the dollar market, remains you know, very well anchored in terms of demand. That big fear that once we start normalizing rates, we're going to see this giant sucking sound away from Treasury markets, especially in the long-duration side, everybody will park on the short duration, made sort of sense to me. But as we can see, that there's still substantial demand for long-duration as well. So the global asset managers, whether it is a central bank or a large pension fund, their demand for treasuries remains substantial.
0: Yeah, great, great point about the, the sovereigns uh, and the other funds uh, sitting in the Middle East with all that oil wealth. Uh, I, I want to squeeze in. This is a really interesting question. Uh, this is uh, from Ralph. It appears that reg- though regulators and investors in Singapore were initially receptive to crypto, they were, they appeared to be initially receptive, and I think that's accurate. What's their view now, given Three Arrows, FTX? Um, is-, is there been a change in sentiment? Is there any cooling on the enthusiasm for crypto in the area?
1: It's a big story in Singapore, yeah. So I think that Singapore is very keen to be pro-innovation and certainly wants to be on the right side, of history in terms of encouraging and fostering financial technology and all sorts of payments around the blockchain or around any other form of interesting financial solution that comes from the tech sector. I think that is not going to change. You have hundreds and hundreds of startups in Singapore, and despite the adverse developments of this year, uh, we're not seeing, if you say, a crypto winter spilling over to the entire fintech space. So I think the message from Singapore is very clear. There's some degree of skepticism about the lack of regulation in the crypto space. There's some degree of skepticism about, uh, you know, malfeasance in that space. But at the same time, there is warm support for digital currencies at the public level, about digital financial solutions for cross-border payments or the usefulness of the blockchain for a wide range of financial solutions. So I don't think that goes away. So support for financial technology is one thing. Support for crypto is a different thing. I think Singapore is leaning on the former, not necessarily on the latter.
0: Yeah, we have long been talking about the fact that you can sort of separate out the technology and the technology, and then there, uh, the technology, you know, uh, applications, and then and potential, and then the some of the speculation that was around some coins and some of the activity, and you know, the regulation. Puzzle that's going to come from that. Uh, you mentioned fintech. I, I certainly know when we're, we when I've been talking to people at, about India, fintech is a big focus. Is that a if you're looking at sector themes? I know you put a, a couple in in your out um, your outlook, and tech disruption was in there. Is that what you mean? Is fintech an area that you're focused on?
1: Yeah. Look, I'm talking to you right now from India, and everywhere you go these days, they're talking about this pilot on the e-rupee. So it's a central bank digital currency that will be issued. It'll circumvent the banking system and from the Indians can receive currency from the government and go out and spend it and it'll be part of the uh, universal payment interface that India has. So there is, you know, experiments going on here with CBDCs in Singapore. The authorities announced a digital dollar that they're going to sort of you know, experiment around. So this idea that for several centuries, we basically had this banking system based financial system. And then even in the 20th century, central banks basically use banks as the source of intermediation. Now, the view is that maybe we can complement or supplement that with one more system where the central bank can directly show up in your wallet and that can be used for payment. It doesn't replace the banking system, but there's probably times of crisis or there are times where the government wants to be directly present in the wallet of uh, citizens that, you know, these sort of things can offer solutions. So that is one area where we're seeing thriving development. And, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, digital technology sort of, you know, removes borders and the future of work is changing. And of course, you know, whether it is India with its millions of young English-speaking population or for the matter, Southeast Asia, it seems like a natural entry point.
0: It does. And and we're almost out of time, so I'm going to wrap up. But um, but you also see aging and interestingly, the green transition on there. We have a lot of skepticism around greenwashing and, you know, whether ESG was out, you know, uh, there was more marketing than there was substance. But but you see that as a theme that's that's going to be one of yours for the next year, right?
1: Well, I would like to hope and pray that it becomes a secular subject as opposed to a partisan subject. Because right now it seems to me like an ESG is becoming a right versus left issue. And that's really, really unfortunate. I don't think green transition should be partisan. It should be something that is sort of acknowledged across the board. And everybody should be skeptical of green uh, washing, if you will. So then we make sure that have the right kind of data, right kind of tracking, and right kind of efforts to fight climate change. Um, So in Asia, the big leader in this thing is China. Uh, mm. They are going ahead. And Maggie, I can't even tell you the kind of investment China is doing on green technology, particularly wind and uh, going beyond that to solar. Uh, sort of breathtaking amount of investment and technology and innovation that's taking place because they feel that they have sort of run out of traditional growth engines. And this mm. is the one area they can sort of, you know, transform their energy grid, their transportation sector, uh, go after, you know, the big motor by developing their own motor ecosystem around EVs. So that's a very big, exciting area of investment. And also, you know, carbon trading and carbon capture, nature-based solution, all sorts of stuff. It's big and it's thriving. It's not cyclical. It's going to stick around, ESG skepticism notwithstanding.
0: I love it. Uh, this has been somewhere we could go on and on. This is such a, we, I think we just scratched the surface, but we got a lot of stuff that we can sure. come back and talk to you about as we get into the new year. But my key takeaways and one of the one of the things I think we're really going to have to talk about again is this idea that China capital becoming much more mobile. That is, that is a story, as I said earlier, that's underappreciated. So thank you for putting that on our radar. But I also hear you talking about the Goldilocks recession. Maybe not a soft landing, but maybe shallow and and less painful than it needs to be, which would be good news for the Fed. Inflation coming down, maybe not as quickly as some hope. And then really look for those valuations. Um, U.S. equities still look a little, even in a shallow recession, still look a little pricey compared to some other parts of the world, including emerging markets um, and especially some of those ASEAN regions, which may benefit from a China
1: reopening. What a terrific summary, Maggie. Well done.
0: I'm trying to wrap my head all around it because there's so much good stuff in there. Thank you so much for, you know, getting basically up for us in the middle of the night. It was fantastic to catch up with you and we'll talk again soon uh, in 20. My pleasure. Thank take you care. so much. And thanks to all of you for the great questions. I'll be back tomorrow, same time with Brent Donnelly. So that's going to be great. You won't want to miss that. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there.